Hi everyone, how's it going? Yep, I am still Sana and this is still Primary Healthcare Development's Pre-Rage Pharmacy Podcast. Now, I know you've probably loved the last two episodes of interviews with the lovely Katie Ellis and the inspiring Mohammed Imran, but today you've got me from start to end. Aren't you lucky? Now, before I officially jump into the world of poisons and antidotes, I just want to give you all a heads up. Next Sunday, it'll be the second Student Choice episode. Those in the Telegram group already know this, and I really want it to be as beneficial as possible. If you're part of the uh, Primary HG Telegram group and you have an idea of pharmacy you'd like me to cover, fill in the survey link in the group and we'll pick the most popular topic together. If you're not in the Telegram group, request to join it via email or Instagram or Twitter and have your say. Last time it was OTC knowledge and I got some fantastic feedback. Don't forget, there's also a Q&A portion at the end of every Student Choice episode, so do submit your questions. I think it's essential to give you a fair warning. Most of the things I'm going to talk about in this week's episode have their own monographs in the BNF and are used for therapeutic indications around the world. But as the great Sherrill once said, too much of anything can make you sick, even the good can be a curse. So that's why you're going to hear me refer to our old friends, paracetamol, iron and aspirin, amongst others, not as drugs today, but poisons. Oh no. Also a little warning for those who may have experienced or seen people experience overdoses or been victims of poisoning. It's definitely nowhere near an easy experience as a sufferer, as someone who cares for a sufferer, or the healthcare professionals around the patient. So if this is likely to affect you in any way, feel free to return to this section when you feel ready. The exam, yes, it's important. And you're always going to need to know this stuff in its most basic sense, but The exam is a while away, so take your time. Remember, you have to be well to make others feel better. Now, let's get started. A sad start with the mention that the BNF is not the best resource for poisoning of all accounts. The treatment summary itself begins with recommending Talkspace and the UK National Poisons Information Service for specific information and advice. We use Talkspace as part of MI, that's Medicines Information in the NHS, and it's such a great resource. It's got really specific advice for all healthcare professionals. That means all healthcare professionals, from pre-regis to the superintendent pharmacists. Wherever you lie on that spectrum, you will not be expected to know everything, but you will be able to get some useful advice out of these resources. So don't underestimate them. More often than not, overdoses and poisoning result in hospitalisation. And it's a bit difficult because people don't always show clinical features. Remember the cautionary label on paracetamol, or should I say labels, 29. That's don't take more than two at any one time and do not take more than eight in 24 hours. And then there's label 30, contains paracetamol. Do not take anything else containing paracetamol whilst taking this medicine and talk to a doctor at once if you take too much of this medicine, even if you feel well. This is because some poisons like aspirin, paracetamol and TCAs like amitriptyline can exhibit delayed reactions. Let me tell you, as a pain pharmacist, if I had a fiver for every time I've been told by a confident patient that they took three paracetamols because two were not doing the trick, I wouldn't even need to be a pharmacist anymore. I think this topic really hits home the essential value of patient counselling. There's a section in the patient information leaflet for every single medicine titled What to do if you take too much? 
And if you listened to Mohammed Imran a couple of weeks ago, I'm about to reiterate that priceless advice. Go to the back of the pharmacy or before you speak to the patient on a ward, have a look at the patient information leaflet. Have a look at what is in that section. It is vital. SPCs and patient information leaflets are two separate resources. If you want to know the best way to counsel a patient, have a look at the patient information leaflet because it tells you how to do things and what to do, what to worry about in plain terms. It's interesting to note that not all poisons have specific antidotes. In fact, only a handful of them do. The most commonly known ones we'll mention later on. But then if most poisons don't have named antidotes, what are we doing here? Well, each poison has an effect and most of the time it has multiple effects on the body. So the treatment is actually symptom management. Let's go through that first. The general clinical features include changes in respiratory rate, hypertension, hypotension, hypothermia, and convulsions. So if the person isn't breathing following ingesting a poison, their airway should be cleared and they need adequate ventilation ASAP. This might mean mouth to mouth or it might mean intubation. And even though an oxygen mask and an oxygen cylinder screams, I save lives to the untrained eye, oxygen does not act as adequate ventilation. That being said, if the poison in question is carbon monoxide or an irritant gas, oxygen is actually the antidote of choice. Hypotension is another symptom that can occur with poisoning from various agents. The mechanisms do vary. Some of them reduce the intravascular volume. Some of them reduce the heart's contractility. Some of them depress the central nervous system. The treatment of this is to usually raise the foot of the bed and to administer IV sodium chloride so the blood pressure can be raised up. Hypertension, that's raised blood pressure, even though it's not as common, can be directly caused by CNS stimulants like amphetamines. TCAs, like amitriptyline, are particularly dangerous in overdose because they can affect cardiac function. If a patient presents with this on your ward, you're going to see them being treated with an antiarrhythmic drug to regulate the heartbeat. Poisons can affect temperature regulation. I find this really interesting. Now, phenobarbiturates can cause hypothermia, that's lowered body temperature. And if this happens, you minimise any further heat loss and have a look at your patient and rewarm them as indicated as they need. Hyperthermia, fascinating. That's when the body temperature is raised. It can be caused at even therapeutic doses of antimuscarinics. Now, how do we deal with this? That's right. The old-fashioned get rid of any unnecessary clothing. Sometimes it really is common sense. And although it might be tempting to sponge them with very cold or icy water, it's recommended to do it with tepid water because the purpose of that exercise is just to encourage evaporation. And because the temperature of the water is going to be less than the temperature of the body, it's going to evaporate. Now, hyperthermia can also occur in serotonin syndrome. And if this is suspected, then call the UK Poison Service as soon as possible. This and most guidance makes hyperthermia sound more like a medical emergency than hypothermia, but in reality, they both are of equal importance. And if you see a patient presenting with this in either community or a GP practice, get them to the hospital ASAP. Convulsions can be a terrifying aspect of poisoning but only start to administer IV diazepam or lorazepam if they're recurrent, or if they last longer than five minutes. If they're not available, 
Bulkamidazolam can be used, but it is unlicensed. As you guys know, I work in the private sector and we use something called methylene blue all the time. It's used for certain type of surgeries involving the breast called sentinel node biopsies. However, it's also used for something called methemoglobinemia. That can be caused by dapsone and some nitrates and it's when the blood turns chocolatey brown. The patient themselves, they present with cyanosis. That's when they turn a bit blue or very blue sometimes. It's their lips and their fingertips where it starts. Have a little Google of the condition. Have a look, look at the colour of the blood. It literally looks like chocolate sauce. I have to mention, this scenario is so uncommon that you'll probably never see it in your whole career. I certainly haven't. But then again, you might. So, better to be safe than sorry. Those special three words again. Don't skip it. Activated charcoal, you're probably already aware. It's like the mother of poisoning is everywhere. It is best given within the hour and its mechanism is to bind to the poison in the GI tract and that reduces its absorption. You can sometimes in some regimens give repeated doses of activated charcoal which aid the elim eliminations of certain poisons like theophylline, carbamazepine and quinine. But just like everything else, it's not a part of every single regimen. Activate charcoal is not part of the management of iron, metal salt, lithium or cyanide poisoning. If you grew up watching TV and films like me, everyone who ingests a poison of some sort undergoes a stomach pump. No matter what they've done, how much they've taken, when they took it. This in real life is also known as gastric lavage. Also in real life, it's rarely needed. Another thing that is not needed at all, is making yourself sick. On the big screen, someone's always trying to make themselves sick after ingesting a poison. It is highly not recommended because all it does is increase risk of infection and aspiration. Now that we've covered the generic symptom management and the overarching activated charcoal, let's get more specific. And we'll start with aspirin. Aspirin poisoning presents as hyperventilation, tinnitus, even deafness, vasodilation and sweating. Comas are quite uncommon but they can indicate a really severe case of poisoning and we always treat aspirin poisoning in a hospital setting because we need to measure a few things. That's plasma salicylate levels, pH levels and electrolytes. Now aspirin absorption can be a bit slow sometimes so even when you started treatment you can actually keep seeing the plasma levels rise before like, it can be a few hours before you see a fall. Hemodialysis is also available for those very severe cases, and it can be considered as part of, sort of, a pathway. I work in surgery, and it's not just hip and knee replacements I deal with, but cosmetic surgeries, hysterectomies, hand surgeries, spinals, and so much more. That means a lot of my patients are either very young or very old and they've never even had more than two paracetamols to fix their pain before. A lot of them haven't even had more than one. This means that it's normal practice for prescribers in these kind of settings to write up some naloxone for the patients. Just in case it's too much for them because they are what? That's right, opioid naive. Naloxone is its specific antidote and it works brilliantly. Usually, all you need is a few injections of it. However, 
If your patient is presenting with really severe symptoms, then naloxone can be given as an IV infusion. And do you remember the two token symptoms of opioid overdose? That's right, number one, respiratory depression, and number two, pinpoint pupils. Paracetamol overdose or poisoning can be acute or staggered. That means it can either be when a patient takes lots of paracetamol at once or they take something like three tablets four times a day. Have a look at the treatment summary for poisoning. It's got details and fantastic protocols, graphs and tables for managing both types. You don't need to know this by heart for your exam, so don't worry. But it's the kind of thing that would be present in a resource pack and... I would advise sticking a little tab in for practice. It'll help you when you get onto a ward like acute medicines or gastroenterology. It's quite well followed and consistent across the board. So that means that all the trusts sort of have basically the same protocol. So it's a really good one just to get your head around. Acetylcysteine is the antidote of choice and it works best if given within eight hours of ingestion. TCAs, as mentioned in NICE guidance in the BNF and probably by every single university lecture you've ever heard, are highly dangerous in overdose. Its poisoning manifests in dry mouth, hypotension, that's low blood pressure, convulsions, respiratory failure and arrhythmias. They don't actually have a specific antidote but the method is to manage the symptoms. You'd give activated charcoal to prevent more absorption and if the patient is convulsing then you would give IV benzos. Hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's been in the news quite a bit during the pandemic. It's part of sort of a class, a group of drugs we call antimalarials with quinine and chloroquine. The poisoning from these drugs presents as arrhythmias and they come on quite quickly after ingestion and convulsions which can be really difficult to stop. If a patient has this poisoning, the National Poisons Information Service needs to be contacted for urgent advice. When we carry our clinical audits on the wards and other departments like theatres and outpatients, two things we make sure are present everywhere. That's one, naloxone, and two, flumazanil. I know that's not a Pokemon. Everyone seems to know what naloxone's for, but whenever I say flumazenil, four out of five people are gonna say, what's that? Bear in mind, I carry these audits out every quarter. So like, there must be a time of the year or a number of audit cycles where you get to and everyone must have some sort of idea what this drug is. You're gonna know before any of those audits because you'll remember that it's the antidote to benzodiazepines. So whilst benzodiazepines here are a poison, they can actually be indicated as an antidote where, you probably remember this from your uni as well, if you overdose on cocaine, you administer IV diazepam to the patient. Why? It's not a specific antidote to cocaine, but it manages the symptom of agitation that the cocaine can bring on.
When you see supportive therapy in the treatment summary and in the two resources I mentioned at the start of the episode, all it means is symptom management. It's listed as a management for calcium channel blocker poisoning as well, but if the poisoning is quite severe, the patient might be administered some IV calcium chloride or IV calcium gluconate just to replace all that calcium that was getting blocked. Another thing to mention is that the GPHC like to ask you what the antidote to methanol poisoning is. This one's an easy one. We like to rhyme in pharmacy. The antidote to methanol is ethanol. This is quite a common one that's asked in the GPHC exam year after year. So you probably already know this one because those kind of things, university lecturers are really good at mentioning. We're quite lucky to have people like that. So you probably already know that, but it's just important to reiterate. Don't miss out these important, easy marks. Finally, carbon monoxide poisoning. It can be intended or accidental and can happen by inhaling smoke, car exhaust fumes, or the incomplete combustion of fuel gases, especially in a confined space. How do we treat this? Well, the patient needs high flow, 100% oxygen, and it needs to be administered through a tight-fitting mask with an inflated face seal. If you don't know what this is, if you work in hospital, you'll definitely see one on a first aid day. If not, do have like a little YouTube or Google search because they're important to understand how important getting that oxygen through the lungs is. And that's all I have to say on poisoning and antidotes. It is a bit of a dark topic. And to be honest, sometimes we do forget that the exam isn't the be all and end all in the future for us. These poisons have evidence-based treatment because the evidence comes from things that have happened in the past. Most of the time you as a pharmacist or pre-reg or even prov-reg won't have much direct involvement in these sorts of patients because there are established protocols and established teams to deal with this very specific specialised issue. However, they do pop up in unexpected areas like I said. I used to work on acute medicines units and you did used to see some accidental overdoses. Some people, genuinely, some people used to take three paracetamols a few times a day and they didn't know how important that was to follow the label. And I worked on gastro loads and those loads of the paracetamol overdoses. I didn't have that much involvement in the actual management of the patients, but because I understood that protocol in the BNF, which is genuinely fantastic, I don't think I can do justice to how brilliantly easy it is to follow. I had to look at those drug charts. They have specific drug charts as well sometimes. It's just an interesting topic. It's a bit difficult, it's a bit challenging, and it does require a lot of reflection, but it is important to know. And the reasons I mentioned the symptoms is because you lovely people who work in community and you lovely people who work in GP practices might be the ones to pick it up. That means you can actually actively save lives in a very acute manner. you've got any questions about today's episode please do not hesitate to contact the primary hg team on instagram on twitter and make sure you join our telegram group where all of us are ready to help also remember to register for the master classes on loads of different topics on eventbrite i will as always 
put the link in the description box. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. I do know it's probably one of the worst topics to revise and to learn about because it is genuinely heartbreaking because you remember there's patients at the end of every situation that we learn about. However, next week is Student Choice Week and the topics we've got to choose from are how to revise effectively, the different types of resources available out there, and epilepsy and CNS. So join our Telegram group so you can have your say. Also, please approach the team or myself if you have any burning questions. We've got a Q&A after every single student choice episode and it has been fantastic. Nothing's off limits. It can be about the exam, it can be about around the exam, it can be for graduation. Even if you're just thinking about doing pharmacy, it can be after the exam, anything. Nothing's off limits. And that is it for me. I've been Sana and I will speak to you next week.